Welcome to the Those Who Dare podcast, where we amplify the voices of military veterans who consistently step outside the comfort zone and go above and beyond society's expectations. This series is brought to you by the team at AI Inventures, a seed stage venture fund founded by Service Academy graduates. I'm your host, Sherman Williams, the managing partner at AIN, where I oversee AIN's venture fund, along with my co-founder, Emily McMahon. Today is a continuation of our last episode with Samuel Cook from Sanity Desk. Uh, Sanity Desk is a um, all-in-one, one-slash-one-stop shop CRM for solopreneurs. Those are folks that have uh, one to three people within their businesses. Uh, so think about uh, CRM, uh, website builder, uh, sales funnel tracker, um, et cetera, all in one place. Uh, so the last episode with Sam Cook, we went through his background and what, what eventually led to him starting a company that has significant personnel in Ukraine. Today, uh, we're going to leverage... Uh, some of Sam's background before he was an entrepreneur, uh, back in the time when he was a uh, Russian history professor at West Point. Um, and we're going to combine that experience with the fact that with his army experience, um, uh, serving as a cavalry officer and combine that also with his time you know, spent in Ukraine. He's spent a significant amount of time there on the ground. We're going to bring all those things together to understand what got us here to the Ukraine-Russia situation. Um, really interested to hear that. So uh, we're going to go, Sam, maybe you can give a quick intro of yourself again, and then we can dive into, um, you know, some of those, uh, what kind of got us here with the situation. Sherman, great to be back. Uh, I always love to talk about Ukrainian history. And, um, you know, th this conflict, Sherman, or this war, really, Russian invasion, let's, let's call it what it is, a war, because Russia likes to say it's a special military operation, but this war is, it's been going for eight years. And I think one of the things that most people in the West may not realize because it's not been on the news for the last several years is this conflict started eight years ago. And hey, can we timestamp today? Today's 24 March. So we're exactly, the evasion started on 24 February, right? The invasion started 24 February, right in 2022. So we're, the, yeah, the so we're exactly one month. We're exactly one month past the invasion. So you're saying that this has been going on for the last, you know, eight years. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and and here's the thing: this this conflict or war between Russia and Ukraine is it's gaslighting on Russia's side. So. Russia calls this a special military operation because they can't admit to their population it's actually a full-blown war. And, but at least they're admitting that they have troops and that they've declared some kind of hostilities towards Ukraine, as, as Putin did at the beginning of the war. But really, it, 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 it all goes back to uh, eight years ago when in November, I think it was November 22nd of 2013, which is eight and a half years ago, actually, uh, when you, I think when you look back on it, uh, the Revolution of Dignity started, which was uh, a movement by young Ukrainians that protested Viktor Yanukovych, the president at the time, who was, by the way, advised by Paul Manafort, who was President Trump's national uh, campaign advisor until a bunch of 
information about his corrupt uh, dealings in Ukraine came out, which forced him to resign as President Trump's uh, campaign manager in the 2016 election. And that went on to precipitate, as we all know, in, in America, a an impeachment investigation. So there's a lot of interesting strands that come together here with the Ukraine story. And Ukraine's always been in the news since then because of its entanglement with uh, Paul Manafort and the political uh, news that that created over the last four years. But Paul Manafort was a political consultant who went over to Ukraine and helped Viktor Yanukovych win the presidency of of Ukraine in 2000 and uh, I believe it was 2010 when he was elected uh, president of Ukraine. And Viktor Yanukovych had lost the presidency in 2004 uh, because he was backed by the Kremlin in that election, but he was not allowed or he, he didn't win it because when they stole the election, the people came out and protested and they did a rerun of the election. And that's where Viktor Yushchenko was was elected. And there was this famous picture of this guy who had his disfigured face because he was poisoned uh, allegedly by Russian agents. And that was the first revolution post-independence in Ukraine of of really people standing up saying, hey, we don't want to just be a Russian puppet state. And when what Viktor Yanukovych did after that was he went out and instead of trying to steal the next election, he hired an American political consultant who was world-class at political messaging. He got cleaned up. He got nice suits. He got more polished. He used sophisticated American campaign tactics to legitimately win the, I think it was 2009 or 2010 election in Ukraine to become the legitimately elected president of Ukraine. And what happened was he made a bunch of campaign promises saying, look, I'm not just going to be a Russian uh, pawn. I'm going to be a president of Ukraine. And one of the big promises he made was we are going to join the European Union economically. We're going to we're going to push in that direction, which was one of the main desires of Ukrainian people. Now, what was interesting also was anyone who tells you right now that if we wouldn't have expanded NATO, if we wouldn't have given Ukraine access to NATO by promising that to them in 2008, uh, that actually isn't true because under Yanukovych, Ukraine had a constitution that, that said we're neutral. We're not going to join any alliances, even though NATO might have offered that. That was not that was not something that uh, Ukraine actually could do constitutionally uh, until after they changed their constitution just a few years ago. So this whole thing that NATO expansion caused it, that's, that was just an excuse for Russia to do what they really wanted to do, which was subjugate the Ukrainian people. So what happened with Victor Sam, So there's a, there's a U Chicago professor. Um, his name is, um, I think it's John Mearsheimer. His whole, his whole thing, I, be, I believe he's the person who gave a speech years ago. It's like 2014 or 2015 about the fact that um, it was, NATO expansion that was caused putting um, was truly threatening Russia. Right, we were taking advantage of the fact that the Russian Russian state was weak. Yep, us being the West, and you know the the people who were going to be caught in between that tug of war were the Ukrainians. So mm-hmm. you're saying that's not true. Um, well, he, he 
here's the point, and I'm not saying the, the, the West is blameless in this. When the West offered Ukraine and Georgia membership in 2008 in NATO and then said, but we're not going to tell you when you're going to get it, they, they basically left both countries out to dry because by saying you're going to be a member of NATO, but we don't, we're not going to tell you when because you're not nearly ready, they just put a big target on their back. So that really was, I think, a huge mistake on the West's part. But anyone who says that that's the reason why Russia has in, invaded Ukraine right now, I think the way that Russia is behaving and the justification that they're giving for their their activities goes far beyond is uh, NATO. Yeah. And, and ultimately, President Putin clearly stated in his speech when he declared war for the special military operation on February 24th that we want to affect regime change because Ukraine is not a legitimate state. It does not deserve to be free and they only have sovereignty under Russia. That's basically what he said. He did a, he did an essay on this. In July of 2021, a 7,000-word essay that you can read on the, the Kremlin website. And he actually, just like Hitler when he wrote Mein Kampf, he was telling everyone what he was going to do and how he felt, felt about things. And nobody believed it. And his excuse when he was called out on the pending invasion was, well, NATO, NATO this. And, he, and really, that was just a way for him to make demands that he knew we couldn't fulfill, which was rolling back the expansion of NATO to pre-1997 borders. But I think ultimately what you're seeing right now just gives lie to the fact that NATO was the real cause. Now, people I know have argued that in the past, but fundamentally, the real issue at stake here and has always been at stake here for Russia and Ukraine going all the way back to ancient history is Ukraine is actually an older country than Russia. It is where Russian civilization language, uh, Russian Orthodox Church started. And it started when Kiev was the center of the Russian world and Moscow didn't even exist as a settlement. It was, it was like literally swampland at the time that Kiev was powerful a thousand years ago. And Kiev had a very decentralized state. They had a lot of powers devolved to their princes. And then the Mongols invaded in 1240, 7 December 1240. They sacked Kiev and, and, and the whole Russian world was basically subjugated to uh, Genghis Khan's, I think, grandson who came in and, and, and conquered uh, that part of uh, the European Eurasian steppe. And after that, Moscow grew up as a Mongol uh, subsidiary, basically. They, they subcontracted security to Moscow because that grew up as a powerful power center. And Kiev, for 400 years, was part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and later the, the the kingdom of Poland and and Belarus ended up splitting out. Wait, can you clarify? So the Mongols came in and twelve forty, twelve forty, December whatever you said, right? Seven December, uh, Pearl Harbor Day. Yeah, December seventh. Yeah, uh, twelve forty. And then, um, how long did the Mongol Empire reign over the uh, modern day kind of Russian sphere? They actually did not give up. It's in, it's interesting. They it's the Ottoman Empire, right? Wasn't it? Well, so the Mongols lost. It took them a couple hundred years before Moscow was basically theoretically paid tribute. In fact, Moscow paid tribute to the Crimean Tartars, which is part of Ukraine until 1780s. 
but they were it was kind of like a legacy payment realistically moscow did not have mongol oversight for more than a couple hundred years but it had a huge impact it, it created a very different mindset the russian side of the moscow side of the russian world had a very different mindset than the the kievan ukrainian side of the russian world because they had different political legacies while russia was under the control of the mongols uh the Polish and Lithuanian empire came in and took over what's most of modern day Ukraine, including, including Kiev. And that became much more Western and European in, in its mindset because it was just part of the Western world. And, and Russia was deep part of the, the, the Eurasian step. Um, so that mindset and that split has always been there. Now, Russia obviously under Moscow grew bigger, grew more powerful. And in 1654, 400 years after the Mongols, uh, you know, took over, they finally got control of half of what is modern day Ukraine, which is everything up to the Dnieper River. So if you're watching the conflict and you see the Dnieper River in Kiev, they basically got control of, by allying with Ukrainian Cossacks, uh, everything on the east and north side of the Dnieper River and everything on the west remained part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth for another 200 years. So that created a split within Ukraine where part of it had Moscow heritage, part of it had very strong Polish heritage, and Kiev was kind of on the, the borderline between all of that. Uh, so, but Ukraine was is always... Why, is that why you, you you see like Eastern Ukraine, a lot of those people are Russian speakers, and yeah. is that where that kind of heritage started, that split? Yeah, uh, look, East East... Eastern Ukraine has always had more Russian influence, more Russian speakers, although there's a lot of people in Eastern Ukraine who speak Ukrainian in the villages, but in the cities, uh, the, the Russian speakers took over. And, and this, a lot of this has a legacy in the Soviet times where the Soviet Union pushed, because it was a big empire, Russia was the lingua franca of the empire, kind of like English in every big city in Europe is spoken widely. So there's actually a lot of ethnic Ukrainians who are ethnically Ukrainian who just grew up speaking Russian at home because in the big cities, that's what you did because that's what got you promotions and things like that. But always Eastern Ukraine has, has had more Russian Orthodox religion. The, the, the church has been stronger there. They, they just have a lot more connection to Russia because for about 150 years until Poland was wiped off the face of the map, Ukraine was split. Uh, between Poland and Lithuania, which had a different religion, a Unitarian church, Ukrainian Catholic church, and the Eastern Orthodox, which was obviously on the, the, the north and the east side of the country. Okay. But, but one of the interesting things about Ukraine, Sherman, to understand is under the Russian Empire, the they had slavery, like American... It, what's ironic about America and Russia is how similar we are. We both love each other. We both love ourselves a lot, probably more than we should. We're both super proud of ourselves, love to sing our national anthem, love our flags. And both countries got rid of slavery at almost exactly the same time in their history. Mm -hmm. And both countries rose up to power in the 20th century off of the back of extreme natural resources bounty, which is oil wealth. America under standard oil and, and Russia under their oil fields. And what was interesting about Ukraine under the Russian Empire was it was always the place that you would be free because it was the borderlands. Ukraine, literally, Ukraina, 
in Polish and Russian means borderlands. That's why my podcast, my foundation is called Borderlands Foundation. And what it means is they never had full control over it. It was always that kind of wild, wild west. It, think of Ukraine as like the Texas of Europe or the Soviet Union. And everyone who went there was usually a fugitive from Russia plantations or farms that had run away, which means they were more enterprise and they were more free spirited. And they would go there and they would join the Cossack bands on the Dnieper River. And these Cossacks just formed these fighting bands that were feared. And they would go back into Russia and a lot of times do raids, steal stuff from, from their old landlords. And they, a number of times throughout Russian history, almost brought down the czar because, you know, you didn't mess with the Cossacks. And eventually the Cossacks got somewhat subjugated, broken up, resettled throughout the Russian Empire. But it's, it's legend. I mean, Ukrainian fighters are legendary throughout history. And... The, their motto is freedom is our religion. And that is something that I, from all of my time. It sounds very American. Yeah. It's, you know, America, religion is our religion, but in Ukraine, yeah, yeah, freedom, literally freedom is our religion. But, but there's a lot of similarities between Texans who are like the most, you know, freedom. country, And Ukrainians and, Imagine if the United States went in and, you know, tried to invade Texas, uh, it would be a hell of a fight, right? Because that's basically what what the Russian authorities or Russian uh, armies done is they've gone in and invaded their most rebellious uh, state that's the most armed and has just the, the most history of being independent minded. And uh, that's really where all this history comes from. It, it's a long history. And both sides have a narrative that is completely at odds with the other. And this comes back to Russia views an independent free Ukraine as an existential threat to their own regime because their own regime has always been built throughout history on autocracy, hierarchy, dictatorship, whatever form it, it takes, totalitarianism as it's taken right now. It's always only been successfully ruled by that kind of model. And Ukraine, on the other hand, because everyone in Russia has relatives from Ukraine, because everyone in Ukraine speaks and understands Russian, them being independent and free is an existential threat to Russia's identity and Russia's regime. And that's really what people need to understand about this conflict. Why the revolution in 2013, which ended, by the way, with hundred and 40 so 130 people they call them the heavenly hundred were shot down on the streets of kiev by snipers from russian security services who'd come in to help put down the revolution russian fsb agents were in there advising the, the yanukovych regime and a great movie to watch on this which is like a gripping powerful documentary would if you want to know why ukraine's going to win this war watch the documentary winter on fire by uh, on netflix because it documents this whole revolution from november of 2013 until February 2014, when the president, after they gunned down those protesters, he fled the country. And they have video images of him with pallets full of U.S. dollar cash getting onto a helicopter, fleeing to Russia. And at, as soon as he left the country, Putin immediately dispatched forces to seize Crimea. 
And Crimea is a strategic point in Ukraine. It's always been a strategic point for Russia. It's where Prince Volodymyr, you know, 900 years ago was baptized into Christianity. It was where Catherine the Great conquered in a bunch of wars with the, with the Turkish Empire. This legendary Crimean Tartars, which had always been raiding and pillaging inside of Ukraine for the for the Ottoman Empire. So conquering Crimea was a huge historical moment. I did my master's thesis on it at NYU. And it was it was part of Ukraine, but but not. It had a very separate status. It's kind of like the Texas of Ukraine. Crimea had a lot of independence, its own special status. And I actually knew some people from Crimea when I was getting my master's thesis, which is why I wrote my master's thesis on Crimea. And I always knew it was a problem because there were a lot of Russian speakers and a lot of ethnic Russians from military background, like their Navy was there, that had moved there. And it wasn't until 1954 that actually Crimea was transferred by by the Russian uh, Soviet leadership to Ukrainian control. And a lot of people said it was a gift from Khrushchev to uh, to Ukraine because Ukraine had suffered so horribly under Stalin, who just died. But actually, Khrushchev's like great granddaughter was just on a podcast. She said, no, my grand my great grandfather never signed that paperwork. He wasn't fully in control then, but he was part of the, the committee that that made that decision. But basically, Ukraine, after the Second World War, under the Soviet Union had an insurgency going for eight years after the Nazis had been kicked out because they wanted their independence then. So Soviet Union, Russia has always been afraid of, and rightly so, Ukrainian fighters and Ukrainian freedom lovers who always seem to rise up. And this is just another iteration of an endless cycle of interaction between Ukraine and Russia. And, And in 2014, Putin sees Crimea because... He could not stand Ukraine being independent. Seizing Crimea was strategic. They needed, Russia had their Navy there. They, they leased their naval base from, from uh, Ukraine, their Black Sea fleet, and they just took it. And, and actually the forces there, because their government had just fallen, uh, didn't do anything about it. There's a lot of controversy over that. But Alex actually, who went through the program in Techstars with us, He's from Crimea and he he left Crimea and will never go back until it's under Ukrainian control again. So not everyone agreed with it. But when they held a, a, a referendum controlled by the Russian army uh, that they said it was 90, 98 percent for uh, probably it would have been a very close vote. Probably a slight majority would have voted to be part of Russia because after the revolution, there were a lot of Russian speakers in, in, in Ukraine who were not happy. And Crimea was the most pro-Russian part of the, the country. But it certainly wasn't the right way to do it. And it certainly is viewed as illegitimate by Ukraine and and the rest of the Western world. And then after that seizure, another insurgency, you know, Putin said, "Okay, well, I can start. I can take the whole eastern part of the country. And he said, let me start uprisings everywhere. They did it in Kharkiv. They did it in Donetsk. They did it in Lugansk, all the eastern cities of Ukraine. But only Donetsk and Lugansk ended up getting any kind of traction. And a lot of that was because Russia sent in a lot of mercenaries, contract fighters to really uh, stir up that that insurrection against the Ukrainian government. But Ukrainians fought back. They almost took back the entire country. By the summer of 2014, Ukrainian forces were kicking out all of these insurgent forces. 
And then the Russian army brings six battalions into the fight and they just come in and they, they ambush the Ukrainian army, surround them at the battle of, um, it, no, it wasn't Ilyavysk. It was, uh, I think I, I can't remember the name of it, but, um, it was, it was a huge battle in, in, in 2014. Yeah. I think it was Ilyavysk and they destroyed and killed most of the Ukrainian army. There was a huge, uh, tragedy for Ukraine. And then a big pitch battle broke out between the Russian regulars, Ukrainian regulars and Putin at the time, he said, no, these are not Russian forces in the country. These are just, you know, they just happen to have all of our Russian equipment. This is when they shot down the Dutch, uh, airliner with, with advanced S 400, uh, air defense system. And it was just, it was just, uh, literally he was gaslighting the world saying we we don't have our troops in there. And Russian soldiers, when they got killed, None of the families were allowed to talk about it. They weren't allowed to acknowledge that their uh, son who was killed in Ukraine was killed in Ukraine. So imagine in America, for anyone listening to this, that you your family can't talk about what, what killed you and they can't publicly acknowledge your sacrifice. Uh, and there were, I think, anywhere from 500 to a couple thousand Russians. There, there was actually a report published a couple thousand of them died and they kept it secret. Because Putin literally didn't want to admit it. And then there was another Ukrainian counterattack in February of 2015. Twelve Russian battalion tactical groups came in. And they, again, surrounded, destroyed a lot of the Ukrainian army. And that's when they had the Minsk agreements, two two Minsk agreements, one after the first big battle, the second after the second. And then we settled into a frozen 800-kilometer trench line with artillery, sniper fire, on and off, you know, tension going up and down for the last seven years until February of 2022, uh, when, you know, Russia finally invaded. And, and so, invaded. so how if, if the Ukrainian army was so devastated back in 2014 or I'm sorry, 2016, 2015, 2014, 2015, 2014, 2015. I mean, that's we're looking at what, seven years. Yeah. How were how have they been able to. Uh, reconstitute themselves in that short of a time with it. Like, I mean, did the U S truly in the, in the Western world just truly flood them with weapons and training. And, you know, we have foreign internal defense, you know, you know, fit and, uh, encounter surgeon folks that were in there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We had just straight up sure. fit, fit fo- folks. Yeah. Uh, out in there training them. Uh, is that basically what happened? It was just, a, it was a rush and the, the rush kind of worked out effectively. Um, in combination with the Ukrainian, the legendary Ukrainian fighting spirit, of course, right? Well, th- that's that's the great question, and that's a great mystery before the conflict, is most Russian military observers agreed or believed that Russia was vastly going to overmatch Ukrainian military because the last data point we had for Russian against Ukrainians was, was a, a disaster for Ukraine. I mean... Russians, both sides, both times, absolutely uh, bloodied Ukrainian forces to the point where they were forced to accept a peace deal that they politically could not implement, right? So the, the reason why this conflict or this war has started in 2024, this overt invasion by Russia, was Putin just got so tired of the fact that the peace agreements basically said the eastern regions need to become autonomous and they need to have a veto. They need to have a say so in Russia, in, in Ukraine's foreign policy, which would have meant 
that Ukraine could never make a foreign policy decision without their assent. And these regions would have been controlled by Russian agents, which basically main, meant Russia could de facto, through this political uh, autonomy for these regions, control Ukraine's politics. And that's what Russia, that's what Putin wanted. He wanted to control Ukraine on the cheap. And Ukraine people did not want to accept that implementation of those agreements. And in 2019, when Zelensky got elected, one of the things he ran on, everyone forgets this, he said, I'm going to make peace with Russia. Because the president who signed the Minsk agreements kept fighting Poroshenko. He was quite nationalist in, in his rhetoric towards Russia. And, and Russia was like, we cannot work with this guy. We'll wait for the next guy. Zelensky comes in. He's from the East. He grew up speaking Russian. He's a peace candidate. He runs on, I'm going to make peace with Russia. I can, I can talk to Putin. And Russia said, oh, I'm gonna, this, is, this is great. Now, here's a, a comedian. Well, I mean, what, what's the worst that can happen? He's a comedian. He knows nothing about inter international affairs, world politics. Short, Jewish guy. We're going to run all over him. I mean, literally, that's, that's what Putin thought. And he came in and he tried actually legitimately to make peace. And this is the interesting thing that happened. I was interviewing on the Borderlands Stories from Ukraine broadcast that we do, a member of the free Ukraine resistance. And, and this guy got on the show and it was the first couple of days of the war. And uh, I said, Hey, how are you doing? And he said, well, you know what our role is? We've been around for eight years and our role is to make sure that our president will never make peace with Russia until all occupied territory, including Crimea is vacated. And if he does so, uh, he will not last. And, and the implicit threat was, well, what's he going to get voted out? Well, if not voted out, he, he might be in danger. And he didn't say that. I'm not accusing this guy of, of threatening the president physically, but I think that that's actually what the president of Ukraine understood was in 2019 when he went to Paris for the peace talks of, about the Minsk agreement implementation, these guys went and camped outside of his hotel just to let him know, hey, we're here, we're watching, and you better not sell your country down the river. So that's what happened. And that's what basically scuttled. And then COVID hit, right? So 2020, COVID hit. Putin apparently is really scared of COVID and he puts himself in a bunker, goes into deep isolation. And he becomes extremely isolated and older and, you know, more of an echo chamber, more of a bubble and just starts nursing these grievances against Ukraine. And he's, he's deeply disappointed in his new, you know, what he thought was uh, someone he could roll over on the negotiations. And coming out of COVID in 2021, uh, Biden comes in. And here's the interesting thing about when Biden came in. Remember that interview where Biden said, Putin's a killer? Yep. It, it was March 2021. And three days later, Putin went on a retreat with his defense secretary or his minister of defense, Shoigu. And they came out right after that retreat and they started mobilizing the entire Russian army along the border of Ukraine. 150,000 troops mobilized across the border. Mm -hmm. So here's here's another myth that people like to say, and it's it's political, of, of course. The Afghan, the Afghanistan fiasco had nothing to do with the invasion of Ukraine. Because 
in April of 2015, they pre-positioned all of their equipment. Sorry, yeah, 2021. Yeah. They pre-positioned all their equipment and then they <clears> drew it back because it was just a dress rehearsal. They wanted to see how Americans and Ukrainians would react. They wanted to see that it was a, it was a big feint in a military terms of what's the strategic reaction of Ukraine and their allies. And what they learned from that was, well, Biden gave us a summit and Ukraine basically did nothing. So next time we do this, we're good. So they went back, they brought all the troops back to the base, but they didn't take the equipment back to the base. They left it there. Is that why it's in such horrible condition at this time? <laughs> well, so so that's yeah. a great point. And, and actually, what did we do in the military when we left equipment in Kuwait and Iraq? We paid very expensive logistics firms yeah all of ex soldiers to go in there and do preventive maintenance to make sure that that prepositioned equipment would not break down over the course of four or five six months because anyone who's had a car and not driven it for a while you know what happens and when they came back in november december of uh, november really late october american american intelligence picked up on it and one of the really interesting parts of this, and I, I can't wait to tell the history of this, I'm certainly going to get involved in that as a historian after this conflict, is how did the American intelligence know so much about what was going on? Because in April, they were really out to lunch. I mean, they got caught flat-footed. The Ukrainians called out the Russian buildup, and the Americans were out to lunch. And in by October, the Americans called it out way before the Ukrainians did. And Ukrainians got flat-footed, and there was this tension between America saying it's going to happen and Ukraine saying it's yeah. not. Yeah, yeah, And What's that, the brief synopsis of, as far as why what, – what is your hypothesis as far as why the IC was able to get it right in such a – was able to get up to speed in such a short period of time? So here, here's a couple of theories on that, and this is, this is all theories and, and uh, conjecture, but – I've been reading Twitter incessantly since November of last year, uh, researching the Russia thing. And it's, it's an amazing resource for lots of room. It's amazing, man. Yeah, it really is. It's yeah. like a historian's dream. If, if you're following something real time and what I did, um, there's two things I think going on. One is this isn't just about satellite imagery. There's some deep human intelligence coming out of Russia where, Someone on the inside, in my view, does not want this to happen. And when it did, they don't want it to succeed. Because, and you're seeing this now, the FSB, half of the, like our, F our FBI, the former KGB is now called the FSB. Mm -hmm. Half of the leadership's under arrest. And apparently Putin's so upset with the leader of the FSB, but he can't arrest the guy because the guy probably won't let himself be arrested. There's kind of like this massive Game of Thrones going on inside the Russian uh, leadership right now. Kind of like Trump and Comey, right? But yeah, uh, with guns and much higher yeah. nukes. A lot more dangerous. Yeah. So that that's really what's going on. In, in, that's what happened in, in November, December of uh, this year. The other thing is, and, and this was actually leaked by the media, and I don't know if that's uh, by design. It may it probably is by design. Uh, Karadov, who's the warlord of Chechnya, who, who runs around with all these Chechen guys in in in, in Ukraine and, and does a bunch of slick marketing videos for his, his soldiers. Those guys, Karadov knew about this early and he was sending voice notes on like unsecured phones 
to all of his buddies bragging about what they were going to do to Ukraine. And I think that intelligence, and I don't know if America shared that with Ukraine and that was the source of their intelligence, but it came out after the war started. That certainly probably almost certainly was in U.S. intelligence hands, probably got leaked to the media by U.S. intelligence to try and create a rift between this guy and the FSB, because apparently FSB hates Karadov because he has way too much influence in the Russian state. And this guy was bragging about what they're going to do in Ukraine. And the other thing, the reason why Ukrainians did not believe that this invasion was going to happen, and this is coming out now, is... The Russian military didn't think it was going to happen. They all just thought, hey, we're on a training exercise. That's what they were told. None of the senior officers were told until the very last minute. And it was a very close, close hold secret. So Ukraine is not stupid. They're very good at spying on Russia. There's a lot of Ukrainians in Russia and Ukrainian heritage. And it's just one of those things, right? You're going to focus as Ukrainian on spying on Russia because that's an existential threat. And they had a lot of sources, I know, inside the military. But they didn't have the sources apparently we had. And, or maybe they did and and they didn't give it enough weight because maybe they were hearing the same intelligence, but they were listening to people in the military and saying, well, they're just not acting like they're going to invade. Like they're not doing the right things. They're not putting out the information. No one's ready for this. And then two days before the invasion, all of a sudden you see Zelensky say, whoa, this is about to happen. Guys, send the ammunition. Guys, get ready. Yeah, he he freaked out at the end there. And it was like, I mean, I I thought the IC did a mass. I'm I'm biased, obviously, but I I thought the IC did a masterful job uh, in the run up to this thing. Uh, And and, I mean, the coordination between the executive branch, the legislative branch, the DOD, the water IC, I thought it was pretty masterful. Um, Yes. And, and what it was so strange with Ukrainians, even some of the Ukrainians I talked to, right? Like the, many of them, you know, and they were like, well, "You guys are so worried about this, da da da." And I was, and it was, it was, it was, it was strange. Um, but then you're right. At the very end, right before February 24th, there was just like a thing where Zelensky was like, "Hey, there's a problem here." Like, yeah, since SOS, you know, yeah. Um, so, so I wonder what, what happened as far as that shift. Well, well, you know what happened was they published the orders because President Biden got on television one night and he said orders have been delivered. And those orders take a while. They got to go down from echelons above reality to brigade. And then when they start leaking down to the point where everyone's like, oh, wow, we're about to go to war. It, you know, it dawns on Ukraine. This is this is going to happen. This, yeah, this is not yeah. a bluff. And I was watching all the stuff on Twitter. And as soon as I saw tanks getting off of the railheads and they start rolling around on their own feet, you know, like tanks never do that unless they're going out into the, the field. And they never drive down roads in towns because it tears up the roads unless there's a good reason for it. And, and as soon as I saw that, I knew, okay, this is going to happen any day now. And what what what's fascinating about that pre-invasion intelligence is, most Ukrainians I talked to who knew people in the government said they did not believe it was going to happen. Yeah. They heard what America said. Maybe America disclosed its sources. Maybe it didn't. Maybe it obscured them. Who knows? But they believed their own intelligence, which was telling them because they had way more spies in the Russian army. And, and, and also Ukraine understands Russian army doctrine very well. And they're saying, hey, these guys are not forming the proper attack groups. There's no combined theater commander. 
you know, like Russia did so many things poorly leading up to the war. Like still to this day, 28 days into the war, there's no unified commander of this war. There's four military districts. Yeah, no combined, no combined arms action whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. So Ukraine was actually saying, okay, well, we know how well we can fight. And you actually need five to 600,000 soldiers to actually defeat us and occupy us. So therefore, we don't believe that what you guys are saying, which is the Russian war aims don't match the resources they develop numerically to it. And you guys can't be serious because you're not acting like a real army that's going to invade. You're acting like a training exercise where all the military districts went out there to exercise their command and control. Because what idiot would have four different competing generals commanding different forces with four different command posts going into a country. You, you wouldn't do it that way. So, so they just refused to believe it. They said, this has to be an exercise because this is stupid the way they're acting. They don't have enough troops and the way they've organized the command and control and the way they're going to invade, they haven't done what we would expect if they were going to invade. And there was a good reason for that. Putin's war plan was absolutely fairy tale thinking because he'd watched the invasion of Iraq in 2003. He saw the thunder runs into Baghdad and he got this idea. Well, if you guys can do a thunder run, I can do a thunder run because I only have to drive 60 miles from Belarus right into Kiev. And I know from my intelligence services that everyone in Ukraine is just waiting for me to liberate them. You know, everyone on the East Bank can't wait. Everyone in the South can't wait. All the Russian speakers are going to love me. Kiev, they're not going to fight. The president's going to run because they're all corrupt. My intelligence officers tell me that I bought them all off and everyone's ready to rise up and form a new government. So therefore, we're not going to lead with lots of airstrikes. We're not going to lead with complete decapitation of the airfields and the, and the air defense because that would take too long. We're going to do a few targeted strikes and we're immediately going to send in airborne forces to seize an airfield out of the capital. And we're going to fly in light airborne armored vehicles. And we're going to drive straight into Kiev on the first or second day of the war. And we're going to take out the government. And that was their fairy tale plan. So Russia themselves didn't want Kiev to believe that they were going to invade because they they had a it was like. Well, what is it in football, Sherman, where you have like um, a flea flicker or some one of those trick plays? Yeah, flea flicker. This, was, this yeah. was like the ultimate trick play or like an onside kick or something strange in football where they were doing so many dumb things. Like Ukraine was like, you guys can't be serious. You're not going to invade like this. Like you, you have to deploy. You have to get into attack formation. Now, they were in assembly areas. They were doing a lot of stuff. But the Russian army literally on the first two days of the war rolled in with no preparation, no adjacent unit coordination, no, uh, you know, synchronization of communication systems, like nothing you would expect a real army to do that wanted to succeed. They did. So Ukraine was waiting for these indicators that never came, which is, okay, they're ready because they've all traded. They're all on secure encrypted communications. They're actually really going to do combined arms. Like, they knew exactly what the Russian military was doing. And they're like, well, of course they can't evade because they're not doing the right things. Wow. And, and so how do we, or, or I guess not how, but what is the end game here? Uh, what, 
how do you think this plays itself out? Um, I mean, the Russians, I mean, the DOD came out and said, not DOD, the NATO came out and said, um, I think they estimate between seven and 15,000 killed, another 45,000 wounded. Um, out of, I think they Russians amassed about 190 to 200,000 folks uh, here. Now, the Russians do have another 200,000 people to throw at the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but But at some point, your society starts to be affected by this, right? I mean, um, you know, the Ukrainians are, I'm just kind of setting the scene here, if I may. <laughs> the, you know, Ukrainians are holding fast, holding strong, even counterattacking in some situations. Yeah. Uh, but they're getting, they're getting the, the hell bombed out of them, right? right? Mm-hmm. And again, like, it's, it's pretty, pretty bad as far as that. So, you know, we're, we're only a month into this thing, right? Uh, now, mm-hmm. you know, as we, you know, go into the second month of the war, how, how does this play out? And, and, and then, you know, Russia's starting to get some, the, the West is starting to put constraints on Russia. Like, of course, no nukes, obviously, but yeah, no, no chemical or, or, or biological. I actually believe the NATO, I personally believe NATO will probably uh, take some sort of kinetic action after that. Uh, if, yeah. they did, if they did come to that, you know, whether it be chemical, or biological, um, you know, we're, we're kind of, you know, as far as the no fly zone, I mean, the Ukrainians are setting up their own uh, no fly zone, basically, yeah. um, you know, so. But but still but still I think I, I saw something on Twitter, I think it was ninety percent of all uh, Russian strikes are coming from outside of Russia. I'm sorry, Russian strikes into Ukraine, yeah. uh, on Ukrainians are coming from Russia, right? Yeah. So you know it's not much. Or, you can, the you can Air Force is afraid to fly over Ukrainian skies, so they're they're doing... yeah they launched the missiles from from Russia territory. So they or they only go on to, they only go into Ukraine for a hot second and then they cop back out. So how does this all play out, man? I mean, what are, what are your what are your thoughts? Like you know, talk to the audience here. Yeah. Well, for, first of all, um, let's just review quickly what's happened until now. Uh, Russia had four different military district command posts all pursue their own objectives without coordinating with each other because they all seem to be competing with each other for resources and attention and approval of Putin. And all four of those efforts appear to have uh, stalled out uh, as of the recording of this show. Uh, the northern effort from Belarus straight towards Kiev was absolutely uh, is 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 in the most risk of of mass surrender and encirclement and 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 you know destruction of of those units that came from the north uh, from the northwest of Kiev and from the northeast and that 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 area is is probably the biggest concern for Russia. And, and I believe in the next few weeks, there's there's a real chance of that front collapsing uh, under Russia because they sent in their special forces to, to seize that air, airfield, their, their airborne troops. And these guys got massacred. And in fact, there were some Americans I know from speaking to reporters I know who went out the first day and counterattacked to that airfield. Americans who were in Ukraine before the war training Ukrainians on how to repel the invasion, ex-rangers, ex-special forces who were part of the original international legion before it was a thing. And that really, the, the Russian troop, the Russian military has lost. Basically their Ranger battalions have been decimated. Their Delta guys have been decimated and their 82nd airborne division has been decimated. I mean, their elite forces have been shredded by this. And because of that and their, elite armored forces too from the eastern military district they're they're in a real bad situation in the north capital in the northeast coming from 
Russia, not Belarus, towards Sumy and Kharkiv, uh, they also have a real problem because that, I think, was uh, a different military district. I don't know if it was the Western. Yeah, I think it was the, the Western uh, military district was in command there. And they were going towards the capital, but they could not take Sumy and Kharkiv, which are these cities right on the border of Russia, but they're able to, to shell them relentlessly from inside Russia with rockets and artillery. And what, what that's proven there is a huge stress on the Russian supply lines because now they need to drive around hostile cities with their fuelers, with their supply trucks, and they're constantly getting ambushed. And they're at the point now where they're retreating from Kiev in the east and going back to secure their supply lines. A again, another area with a huge chance of a catastrophic failure for, for that, that force. The next force down the line as you go east is the oldest and most seasoned force, which are the separatist forces, which are actually the ones that are drawn from the separatist regions of Ukraine, but have a lot of military backing from Russia and reinforcement. I mean, Russian soldiers now are all along that line, but they've got trench lines. They got a lot of established ammunition dumps there, a lot of supplies. And those are the guys that are fighting the hardest that are threatening the Ukrainian forces the most because the best Ukrainian forces are on the Eastern front also. And they have a real fight on their hands. And that's where Ukraine could actually see its regular best forces potentially really uh, surrounded or cut off if they're not careful. Uh, but that, that danger has gone down a bit, but it's, it's still the most dangerous part for Ukraine. And that's where Mariupol is on the very Southern part of that line where that city's surrounded and there's no relief in sight for, for the civilians there and the Marines. But it's not, it sounds like that they almost strategically lessened the Ukrainians have lessened their focus on Mariupol to focus oh, yeah. elsewhere. Right. Yeah, look, the, the Ukrainians have to make tough choices, just yeah. like the Russians, where if they divert a bunch of forces down to relieve the siege of Mariupol, they risk encirclement uh, around yeah. Kiev, right? Yeah. If, if they, uh, you know, everything, Kiev is the main target of Russia, right? And if Russia mm -hmm. knows if they surround Kiev and take Kiev, then, you know, they, they own Ukraine to the east of, of the Dnieper River, historically, just like they've always wanted to do. But uh, so so it's just a tough choice that Ukrainian government has to make. But I, I've heard rumors that there's something brewing for that. And Ukraine has started counterattacks around Kiev. And who knows? I mean, Mariupol uh, may be in store for some kind of relief. Uh, you know, I, I know that the troops in Mariupol that I've seen videos from, they're still fighting and, and their morale's high, although they're a bit depressed about being surrounded. They're still in fine fighting shape and, and they're giving... Uh, a lot to, to the Russian forces coming in. And the Russians actually, they're sending in occupied territory forces there. They're drafting men up to 65 years old in the occupied territories. They won't draft Russians like that, but occupied territories, they're just dragooning every military age male, 18 to 65. 65 is crazy. Yeah. It, it, That's yeah. crazy. It, it is. Uh, even, even in Ukraine, 18 to 60, I... I, I don't know. In the we were all taught, you know, fighting age males was sixteen to forty-two. Yeah, right. <laughs> sixty, sixty was like whoa. Yeah, uh, I gotta you know stay up on my fitness, right? Um, yeah, no, keep 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 60, keep fit. Yeah, sixty-five is insane. You know, yeah, that's retirement age. I mean, yeah, no, it, it's it's crazy. And 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 then the last, you know, the last front on 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 there, controlled by the southern military district. 
is actually the uh, the most successful front the Russians have had, which is when they drove out of Crimea that morning. I, I remember I was up on Twitter watching because uh, I knew something was going to happen that night. I just had a bad feeling. I'd heard some rumors and I just stayed up all night. And the first footage I saw that confirmed the invasion was starting was the border crossing checkpoint between Crimea and Ukraine was was you, you could see the Russian forces uh, come in, knock out the guy who, who's poor border guard guarding that crossing. And what happened there was the Russian forces ended up catching a Ukrainian brigade. The whole brigade that was covering all of southern Ukraine happened to be on a training exercise at the time. So they were out in the field just training. And the Russian forces caught him on a training exercise and ambushed him. And this force went up and, and retreated all the way up to Mikolaev. And they regrouped right around Mikolaev. And if the Russian forces would have gotten across the river at Mikolaev on the first few days, they would have uh, seized Odessa. And if they would have seized Odessa, they would have cut off the entire country from the sea. Yeah, all the Ukrainian grain that goes to the world market goes through Odessa. And that would have been a disaster economically for Ukraine and, and probably would have strangled Ukraine economically and, and, and really uh, changed the course of the war. But that brigade fought back. They got to Mikolaev. They set up a defensive position. And the governor of that town came out with all kinds of uh, territorial defense people. And they just beat the Russians back uh, multiple times. And a town north of Mikolaev, there were no Ukrainian troops there. They tried to bypass Mikolaev, and a Russian battalion went up there, about six, 700 soldiers, and got massacred by just locals with anti-tank weapons and rifles and hunting, hunting rifles. And they, they, they fled all the way back down south after that. So some incredible fighting has happened. And, and that's very open territory, kind of you know, more advantageous to Russian armor and firepower. But Ukrainians have fought back in that area and stopped them cold. And coming out of that area, they, they've gone up to Krivorik, which is where my fiance's family's from. President Zelensky's from. They're about 50 miles from that town right now or 40, 50 kilometers from, from that town. And they're trying to encircle Ukrainian forces on the east side of the river coming from the west. But they just don't have a lot of combat power there. So what what's happened, and, and long story short, by 28 days of the war, Russia has culminated. And they have no combat power supplies. I mean, there's some units where Russia has suffered 50% frostbite cases. Uh, you have you have some units, airborne units, where the entire unit gets destroyed as completely combat ineffective due to KIA wounded and desertions. Uh, you have uh, units that officer, a colonel, got his legs crushed because one of his tank drivers drove over him. I just saw that. Yeah, he was unhappy about the, the 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 casualties they'd all suffered, so he just decided to, you know, so fratricide, a fragging of officers, uh, desertion among units is is more and more uh, rife among the Russian soldiers. They have almost no supplies. Their supply trains are getting ambushed, and and they're starting to dig in and they're starting to build fortified positions. They're starting to dig their armored vehicles in. They're starting to dig in trench lines. They're starting to lay mines in front of their position. But the thing about Russian forces versus Ukrainian forces is when they dig in into a de defensive position, they're in a hostile country. They're, they're in Indian country. Everything around them is hostile. And their supply columns that are coming to resupply them might not get there. 
And Ukrainians have night vision goggles and they've been trained by U.S. special forces for the last eight years. And, and to your question before, why did Ukraine do so much better than they did eight years ago? U.S. special forces have been in the country a company at a time from 10th group or wherever, you know, uh, the European group that, that handles that. And they've been training Ukrainians relentlessly over the last eight years. They've trained Ukrainian special forces, which are running around the battlefield, targeting, calling in airstrikes, ambushing people. And then U.S. Army National Guard soldiers in Western Ukraine have been training all Ukrainian soldiers. Yeah, um, that's, uh, is that, that's uh, the National Guard. California or Florida National. Florida National Guard. No, but there was another big National Guard. I think it was yes. California was, was pretty big, too, Ukraine. Well, California National Guard's training the Ukrainian Air Force. So okay. Ukrainian pilots for the last 29 years have been going to California and training with our pilots. Yeah. And what's happened with the Ukrainian National Guard or the Ukrainian Air Force is they've really adopted, especially after 2014, when they first bought the Russian Air Force, they've adopted all the best practices in, you know, Top Gun stuff and all that from American forces. And there's been some amazing articles coming out, you know, uh, California National Guard soldiers talking or, you know, officers talking about their training experiences with Ukrainians. And then the Florida National Guard has basically built, and, and I don't know if it was them the whole eight years, but U.S. National Guard troops training in Western Ukraine have basically taught Ukrainians how to have non-commissioned officers, small unit tactics, yeah, ambushes, yeah. you know, the things that they needed to do to counter a, a, a vastly numerically superior army. What you're basically seeing is the Russians have made every mistake they could make. And the Ukrainian army, to its credit, if they're making mistakes, we're not seeing it because they're they have very good OPSEC. And they are fighting well, propaganda too. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, we're in an information bubble and, and we're only seeing what the Ukrainian armed forces are putting out. But, well, and also what Western media is pushing yeah. on it too, right? Yeah. Yeah. But the Ukrainian military objectively, even even if you watch both sides of it, um they are vastly outperforming what everyone expected. Uh, nobody, I mean, our government gave them 24 to, our government gave them 48 to 72 hours to, to, to make it. Like literally they thought the, the Ukrainian military might last three days in the field against Russia. And, and you know, history's great because you can never go replay it. You can't A-B test history. Yeah. So if Russia would have invaded the way Ukraine thought they should have invaded, which would have, caused Ukraine to believe an invasion would actually imminent, then maybe this would have turned out very differently and they would have actually been successful. Yeah. In the, in the first 48, 72 hours. But I, I remember when, you know, the first few days of the war and I, you know, you and I were calling people in the country we knew and, you know, there were airstrikes and people were freaking out and everyone was trying to get out of the city. I remember the third day of the war when Zelensky said, you know, he, he did that famous selfie video, which is now like some rap video where he's, he's saying, we're yeah, here. Yeah, here, me, the ministers, economic yeah. ministers, here yeah. my staff, we're here, we're not going anywhere. Yeah. You know? and, I mean, yeah, that, that was, that, I mean, well, and, and, he's, and then, he's the black swan. He's the outlier in this situation and no one could have called. No, and, and no one no one expected, look, I knew. I he could have called himself doing that. Like, he no, was I, just like, I, I don't think he even thought he had it in him. I mean, ultimately... Yeah. He, he, he got a break because Russia came in and they got, they got bloodied because they came in too cute 
yeah. by half. Yeah, trying to do a trick play. Yeah, they tried a trick play rather than just doing yeah. basic blocking and tackling, and yeah. they got punched in the nose. And Zelensky stood up there and said, we're here. And then, you know, President Biden came in and said, oh, we'll evacuate you. And everyone was calling him, you know, 10, 20 minutes, every 10 or 20 minutes, Western leaders were saying, hey, we'll fly you out. We'll fly you out. We'll be heroes. And he said, the fight is here. I need ammunition, not a ride. When he said that, and I saw that quote, I said, the third day of the war, and I put it on the Borderlands podcast. And I've got, we've done 20 episodes in 28 days. We did an episode every day for 14 days. Now we do it three times a week. And I said on the third day of the war, they've won the war because when their president stood and refused to be evacuated, I always knew the people could fight. Every Ukrainian I knew, my friends that I, I hung out with, I knew they would fight an insurgency for 20 years to get Russia out of the country. And that's what I thought was going to happen. I thought that's what would happen. Mm-hmm. Quick collapse of the state. Government leaves, surrenders. Mm-hmm. Military gets run out of the field, but the Ukrainians will fight for 20 years. And that's what America was planning for. That's what we thought we were going to have. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I mean, Zelensky was this black swan of history where a five foot six, you know, comedian, Russian speaking Jewish guy in Ukraine changes the course of history and becomes the next Winston Churchill. And, and um, that, you know, I think anyone listening to this, um, you know, I'm a historian and, and I'm never, I'm never like, you know, when Trump got into office, I, I used to joke and I said, man, if the house of cards ever would have written this script, they would have been run out of town. Cause it's just yes, true. Crazy, right. Yeah. yeah. And when Zelensky real, real life is much more, much more interesting than art. Yeah. And, and, and when Zelensky comes in and he's this way, I mean, this war is literally, it's, it's like the twists and turns of history that are so entertaining compared to what any fiction writer could ever come up with. Yeah. And, um, you know, for me as a historian, I'm, I'm, you know, I've decided like, I want to tell this story as a historian. I'm telling it real time because this is the greatest story of our lifetime, I believe. And, and it, I think it's so consequential and, and this is moving into what we're, what, what the consequences are. We could be very early in a long struggle and this could be as Zelensky calls it, the, the, the world war three's already started. You know, and that's that's where I think we're at right now is are we at the beginning of World War Three, as Zelensky says, or is Putin about to buckle, uh, you know, and there's many different things that can happen. Well, as a former Russian history professor, I mean, from a, from the Russian side of the house, right, like how how long can this be sustained? I mean, you know, look, the country has over 100 million people. They have plenty of re- natural resources. They have a manufacturing capability. I mean, the Russian state really is under no, the Russian state is really under no existential threat, right? Um, Russia as a state. Now, the people in power, maybe, a la Putin, uh, and the people, some of the people around him, right? Internally, they may be under threat. But the Russian state is really under no threat. But um, I would you know, I would strongly disagree with that. Okay. Well, well, I'm, I'm saying the people in power him with under threat, but this, the state, the state of Russia, like, I mean... They do have their internal divisions, et cetera, but would not Medvedev or someone else just step in and, and kind of, you know, step in for Putin and just kind of control things. But I don't even want to go there. I just want to talk about from from their military standpoint, like, what are your thoughts about how long they can sustain this? They've taken a tremendous amount of losses, but they have a ton of reserves and life is not fair. I mean, you know, everyone's been cheering on Zelensky and the Ukrainian, Slava Ukraine, all this, et cetera. But I'm like, man, you know, per my life, my lived experiences, right? Life is not fair. Mm-hmm. War is 
or it's one of the things that's really, really not fair. And you can have all the will you want, but if they keep pounding you, uh, if the rushes keep pounding you, I mean, you know, people may break, right? Um, yeah. But you know, it, it, I mean, those, these things happen. So, how, from a from a Russian military standpoint, do they have that capability to keep pushing, or is the are you are we about to see the strategic collapse of the Russian military, right? Which is really the only the only thing that that Vladimir has from a power standpoint, right? Like we don't even know if he's. I mean, he's not. Is he even truly democratically elected? Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. He's got support of the people. If because if you don't, if you're not truly democratically elected, and all you really have is the military, if you don't have the military, then <laughs> you know yeah. you're, you're kind of out to dry, right? It's kind of like you talking about Trump. I mean, I was really scared in the U.S. because I was like, man, I, I really don't think Trump. The United States military is very professional, but I mean, it was looking. He wasn't the most popular man amongst the officer corps of military yeah. at the end there at all, or the IC, right? Yeah. So, yeah. He, he had a lot of enemies in the state and, and, and actually I, well, there's really four ways this could go in, in my, in my view. And, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll try and paint each scenario in, in some rough probabilities because I love being a historian because you're never wrong when you're a historian, but you're always, you can always be wrong when you're painting what could happen. Uh, you're likely going to be wrong if you try to predict what's going to happen, but I'll, I'll take a few, I'll, I'll paint some scenarios just to give some people, people, some things to chew on. Well, the first thing that could happen is that on the 1st of April, and, and we're, we're publishing this probably around that time, the Russian military uh, has the next class of draftees that need to get dropped off by their mothers and their babushkas and whoever takes care of them. And a bunch of scared young 18-year-old men from across Russia need to go into the meat grinder, right? They need to raise their right hand, swear allegiance to Putin, the czar, whatever, whatever they swear to. And they need to go replenish the Russian military ranks. And that happens every year. And the current people who are conscripted, who weren't supposed to be sent to Ukraine, but were anyway, who Putin promised to take out, but probably hasn't yet, they're going to be stop lost as in the military. Now, even if they don't deploy to Ukraine or, or they get pulled out of Ukraine, they can go replace other contract soldiers, 40% of the 900,000 soldiers in the Russian military are contract soldiers. So about, I guess, 400,000 could be sent uh, over or 400,000 total of contract soldiers. But, you know, they're press ganging. People have debts and saying, hey, you, you get out of debt if, uh, you know, you, you join the army. You know, I mean, shoot, I, I'd go join the army to, you know, clear out a few debts myself. Right. So um, but, you know, they, they get all kinds of. Uh, offers they're they're trying to go scrape society you know press gang people in you know so unofficial conscription so yeah they can they can generate manpower but that's going to take time and that will potentially be a huge strain on society so there's a there's kind of a, a fork in the road where putin has to decide i'm going to take peace i'm going to take my chips and go home and i'm going to get the ukrainians to agree to something i can sell as a victory back home and I'm going to go reconsolidate power within my country because I just lost most of my top elite forces and a lot of my National Guard forces who I count on to keep order within the country. And I need to go replenish and lick my wounds and, you know, maybe come back at this in a few more years or maybe not because maybe he's old and he's sick, like some people say. So that's one one scenario. I think that's a pretty low chance because Ukrainians actually feel like they're winning now. Ninety three percent of the country feels like they're winning and 47% of them feel like they're going to win soon in the next few weeks. So so I don't think 
Ukrainians are willing to give Putin what he needs to sell back home a victory. So I, I give that a low probability, maybe 10, 20%. The next scenario is Putin doubles down. He scrapes the barrel. He, he does some covert conscription or overt, but he, he goes in for the long haul. And I think that's the most likely scenario. But there's three derivatives of how that could end up. First of all, he may not have the month and a half, two months that he needs strategically to rearm, refit on the battlefield of Ukraine. I mean, I think the Russian army, there's there's a, a small but growing chance that small and large parts of it could start to collapse in the next, you know, 60 to 90 days, in our three, 30 to 60 days, right? As Because Russia has to do a major strategic operational pause rebuild their supply lines, get some rail lines going in, get new forces in, rest, refit, rearm, reequip. It's just clear they have to do that. That's a small but growing chance that they may not actually have the time and the morale to do that. Now, that, that's the that's kind of the wild card to watch. Well, the pro- the problem with that wild card, too, is that, I mean, <laughs> I mean, they, I, they can get the rail lines to run up to Ukraine, but they won't be able to put them in Ukraine. If they do a strategic pause... The that will that will only galvanize forty four you know the population I think two million people have left Ukraine or three million people or whatever that's like four that's still over forty million people yep. that are galvanized yep. right the world is galvanized and and the and the NATO uh, and surrounding nations around Ukraine simply flooded with more even more supplies right that's a, that's yep. a, that's an opportunity that strategic pause is an opportunity for them unless the, unless the Russians like do a strategic pause but keep bombing. Just well, no, they'll, they'll keep bombing. They'll keep lobbing yeah. artillery. So the strategic pause is they're, they're going to keep being brutal. And that's the only thing they can do in such a pause. But but that pause may not actually prevent the collapse of the artillery crews that have to lob those shells that are getting surrounded and killed sure. by, by special forces. Because Ukrainian special forces are hunting and not taking prisoners of artillery. Are they going into country? Are they going into Russia to do so? No, they're not. But most of the Russian artillery can't reach aside from like Sumi and Kharkiv. But what they will probably start going in there at some point if they haven't already. But Ukraine's already said, if you're an artilleryman, you're not going to be taken alive. And their special forces is going out and hunting artillery. Right. So sucks to be a Russian artillery, man. (laughs) Yeah, it does. Because war crimes or. or, Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Um, The other. So the strategic pause is is necessary no matter what they have to do it but they're going to keep bombing and being brutal because that keeps the pressure on Zelensky and and Ukrainians to you know go divert resources to dealing with that because humanitarian crisis in Ukraine Ukrainians care about their people they're going to have to divert people troops you know if Russia can get two or three brigades away from Kiev down to Mariupol they've achieved a, a key strategic objective which is diverting attention from the main effort so the second variation of this is that Putin manages to rest and refit, and it's just a long slog that just gets increasingly brutal. And the you know the conveyor belt of manpower from Russia and and Syria and wherever else he grabs people from just just creates like a World War One type scenario where it's pretty static positions, you know, for a while. Okay, um, and then the third variant of that could be that Putin feeds the meat grinder. And so I think, I think the second it's probably I'm torn between whether or not there's a collapse in the next 30 to 60 days, or we get to that kind of long drawn out scenario. 
And then there's the wild card dark horse option where the Russian FSB, the the, the ex KGB that that Putin was in charge of, that's now the FSB. They're not happy with Putin and he's not happy with them because he's blaming them for bad intelligence. Like we blamed our intelligence agencies for WMD. And there's a power struggle. There's a real world Game of Thrones, you know, Jim Coney v. Trump to the to the 10th power going on. And there's a real possibility. And, and Russian watchers are saying that Putin is skating on thin ice with his regime because he's he's mad at the military. He's mad at his his FSB. And the only people he has he can trust is his own personal security service. And and that is really, you know, a dangerous place for, for the regime right now. And and then there's also the revolution from below where a bunch of people with pitchforks come into the Kremlin. And that happened in 1905 and 1917, you know, both in the midst of disastrous wars because Russians don't like losing wars. And that's a historical precedent. So those are kind of, I think, the four ways this could go. And, um, you know, as a historian, I hate to assign too much probability each, but, you know, one of those four will go. Wow. Well, Sam, this is fascinating. Um, I was just sitting here at the edge of my seat listening to you. Uh, first of all, man, I mean, good on the uh, the uh, West Point History Department. They trained you well, my friend. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Whoever your professors were, kudos to them. And we actually have someone... I told you as someone uh, interning with AIN right now, who he you were his teacher when he was at West Point. Uh, but we're going to wrap this up. So um, please uh, subscribe to the podcast and our AIN uh, Ventures newsletter below. Uh, we release the newsletter, you know, first of every month. Um, if you want to visit and uh, find out more about us, uh, visit our website, AINVentures.com. That's Alpha, Alpha India November Ventures.com. So until next time, uh, have a great rest of your week. Sam, again, thank you so very much for all the knowledge you've dropped on us, you know, and uh, we will we look forward to uh, supporting you in the future in all your your endeavors.